You may have heard me share this story before if you've been here a long time. If you haven't, you haven't heard it in a while. I used to have a class that I would go into, and like many classes that you went to when you were in school, this is elementary school for me, the teacher would call roll. It would list off your name, and he would say, here, ma'am, here, high school sir. But I had this one class with a wonderful woman who's a very strict woman and a very particular woman and a very orderly woman. And when she called roll, there was always a different kind of character to it. It would start like this. Hello, Eric. And she never sang without using her hands. Hello, Eric. That's how she called roll. She did this for every single kid in the class. And of course, you didn't get to say, uh, here. You got to say, Hello, Mrs. Brittingham. Like you were stuck in some bizarro Sound of Music episode. Hello, Eric. Hello, Mrs. Brittingham. And you expected sunshine to come right out of the curtains on the stage and lollipops to be dancing overhead. It was weird. And it was lovely. And it let you in on a secret. We're in a different kind of class here. They ain't got no textbooks. There's no calculators. There's no strange graphs and plotted coordinates on a board. This lady is singing the role to us. And we're singing back in response. We're in a different kind of class. We've just entered into a different kind of world than the rest of our little pioneer experience at East Ridge Elementary. And today I want to talk to you about our calling as a church, which happens to be our cure as people of the church. And All of that depends on recognizing that we are in a different kind of world than we ordinarily think we are. Just like I walked into this class where this lady sings to us and asks us to sing back to her, you've just got finished singing. There aren't many places in your life where you go and you sing things. On one hand, you can say, Singing's kind of weird. And on the other, you can say singing's kind of magnificent. Each year this time, we look at our calling as a church. What are we supposed to be about? What would someone say if they said to you, or what would you say if someone said to you, is Rock Creek a good church? What would you say? Don't say it out loud. I don't want you to hurt my feelings. But to answer the question, you would have to have some kind of operating set of criteria in your head as to what a church is. What would make it good? What's it supposed to do? And that's what we're going to talk about today and next week and the week after that to remind ourselves what we're up to and what we're about and hopefully to rejuvenate us in that calling. And as 
Alistair McIntyre has said, if you saw the Rock Creek response on Friday, you can't know what you're supposed to do unless you know what story you're a part of. You don't know what it is you're supposed to do unless you know what kind of story that you're actually a part of. What's the nature of this universe? Why are you here? All of those sorts of things. And so the Christian story, of course, is that our world was breathed into existence by the one we cannot see, but the one who has shown himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that there's something profoundly defective in us, that there is an indigenous allergy to each of our hearts and something that's so corrupt and so wrong, it makes us want to hide from other people and wants to hide from God. And we believe that for some reason or another, God has selected a people out of the world and said, I am going to remake you and you're going to bear witness to the world that this remaking is possible. And one day I'm going to make all things new. All the sad things will come untrue and all the things you've been longing for and are constantly frustrated because they don't get realized are going to be realized. We're part of that story. We're part of those called out people the church, the called out ones. And we, as part of that story, have a particular calling. And we're going to look in these next three weeks at these three aspects of that calling. The first is we have a responsibility and a privilege of service to God in worship. And that's what we're talking about today. We have a responsibility and privilege in service to each other in our nurture of the life of God in each one of us. And we have a responsibility and privilege to the outside world in our witness, bearing witness to the resurrection and to the work of God through our evangelism, through our works of service, through our daily work and through our care for the poor. Ed Clowney summarizes those nicely, worship, nurture, witness. These are the three pillars of what we believe makes us a church and what we're supposed to be about as a church. And if we're being church well, we will be giving ourselves to these things. And so today we'll start with the part of our responsiveness to God in worship. And to do that, I've borrowed this passage from Revelation, because Revelation is very easy to understand. I think you should assume that about 85% of what people preach from Revelation you should not listen to. But that's probably low. But there's a picture here that reminds us, as the rest of Scripture does, that our calling as a church and our cure as a church is worship. It's a happy coincidence that God would call you to something that would actually be mending to you. That he wouldn't call you to something that was going to destroy you or run you into the ground. That he was actually going to call you to things that would make you feel alive. That would finally scratch your deepest itches. That would finally slake your most inordinate thirsts. Your calling and your cure are one and the same that we've been called to this idea of worship. And you see this picture in Revelation, as you saw in Zephaniah, as blue, red, 
of a rescued people who've made it through a very rigorous ordeal. They have come out of great tribulation. We believe that we've been in tribulation. The church has been in tribulation since the ascension of Jesus Christ. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And in between, we're told we will face many tribulations. And this is a hard race. We have a living depiction of hard races around us as iron people subject themselves to ridiculous feats of strength, wearing spandex and funny hats. But these are indeed iron people. They're fortified with some kind of something inside that makes them be able to run and swim and bike for a really long way. And there's something as well that draws people around them as they're making the turn from Red Riding Hood on the Lula Lake Road and Fairyland where people want to cheer them on. And yesterday I was at a tennis match downtown and it was infuriating because you couldn't get anywhere and it was exhilarating to watch these runners at the end, these women, who were just looking like they, they were just so close to wanting to die. <laughs> they were at the end and every now and again someone would go, like Elaine on Seinfeld, you're all winners. But there's something emboldening, isn't it, to be cheered on like that when you're barely hanging on and you can't feel your feet anymore and your muscles are completely depleted and your lungs are screaming at you, why did you do this to us? And to get cheered on. And the book of Revelation cheers on Christians who wonder, is it worth it? This passage cheers on pilgrims who wake up in the morning and say, does it matter to follow Jesus Christ? Who wake up and say, I'm not sure I have what it takes to be me today. Who go to bed sometimes in the deepest despair and they don't want tomorrow to come. Who wonder sometimes when Everybody around them thinks they're a, to be theologically precise, a wackadoo because they trust Jesus and they take their marching orders from him. They wonder and you wonder, does this make any sense? And in certain parts of the world where you actually get your life taken from you or your wife or your husband and you get beat up and you get imprisoned because you believe that there's a king of the universe that you're answerable to who's also your rescue. And you're willing to endure anything for it and it gets wearisome sometimes. And you say, is it worth it? And the book of Revelation, there's all these pictures like this one that say, be cheered on. Because God's people make it through. And when they make it through, they find that what they were called to do on earth, they're doing in such a splendid way that is that they're joining in what creation does and what the angels do, and they themselves are actually healed. After this I looked, says the Apostle John, on Patmos, alone, by the way. He's been visited by an angel, a vision. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count, innumerable masses of people that had been rescued 
from every nation, from every tribe, transcontinental, transnational, transtribal, from every people and every language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, which we know is Jesus. And they're wearing white robes, and they're holding palm branches, much as you do when you go to a staff meeting. This is a sign of being in the presence of royalty. This is a a waving, honoring, homage-paying thing. And they all cry out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They all cry out before Jesus, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. When we say that worship is our calling as Rock Creek Fellowship, and worship is the calling of Jesus' church in the world, not just our church, we're not urging one another to do something that's foreign to us. All wise commentators in the Bible itself would remind you that worship is something that comes second nature to you. All of us are people who are looking for something or another to say, salvation belongs to you. You're what's going to save me. There's all the time something or another that all of us are looking into that, as David Foster Wallace would say, the things that we tap into to say, this is what will give me life. There are things in your life that you think, if I can just get these people to like me, they will heal me. If I can just get these products, this dress, these shoes, this car, this house, I will matter. Something defective in me, something that I'm bereft of will be filled up and will be super glued back together. We're good at making things relationships, stuff, making them the main thing about us, to say to them, you are my salvation, you tell me I matter, you're what I live for. And it's subtle. We don't even realize we're doing it. And so that's why it's very interesting when you look at the scriptures that the way that worship is described for God's people is usually something like, say, in Exodus, where God speaks to Moses, who speaks to Pharaoh on his behalf, And says, let my people go from their bondage so they may worship me. That's the main event in the whole Old Testament. It's people who are being dehumanized. People who are being treated like no people at all. People who were, just because of their ethnicity, were treated like trash. Those people... God called out from this dehumanizing, demeaning captivity so that they could worship him. And see, all worship of God involves being liberated from some other kind of worship, some other kind of captivity, because if you worship anything, if you say to anything, even a good thing, you are my salvation. You are what I've got to have. You'll become enslaved by it. And it'll run you into the ground. 
And it will fill you with shame. And it will promise and promise and it will eat your lunch. And so God has to rip you out of it. So Peter could say to the church, you are a royal priesthood, God's treasured possession. He has called you out of darkness into his light that you might declare the praises of him who did that. This idea of God ripping you out of one domain, the kingdom of darkness, and placing you in the kingdom of light. He's ripping you out of one set of allegiances and worship to the one that's going to heal you. And so Paul can say that you've been selected to be for the praise of his glory. The whole Old Testament is about God's people being set apart to serve him exclusively, to say you're the weightiest character in our lives. And here we see in heaven these people saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the angels and the elders and the four living creatures, they all fall down, prostrate before the Lord, and they say, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God be forever and ever. They heap up superlatives as S.M. Lockridge once said. He's the superlative of everything good that you want to call him. And that's what they're doing. Because they've come face to face with something that's so stirring and so magnificent and so encompassing that they realize everything about their life was made to be in connection with this God. And so they just heap up superlative after superlative after superlative. We are a church that's been called to worship. To heap up superlatives to God. Who've been called out of darkness to give praises to God. We're called to give appropriate responses to the worthiness of Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The other day I was at Chick-fil-A. You're like, do you live at Chick-fil-A? No comment. And while I was there on Brainerd Road, there was a little boy who was out in the parking lot, exactly where he should have been doing this. And overhead there were these airplanes going, because it's near the airport if you're not familiar with the area. These airplanes were going overhead, these massive airplanes, especially if you're three feet tall. And this boy was positively exuberant in trying to capture the notice of these airplanes and just heralding the presence of these airplanes. He was jumping up and down and waving his arms and screaming into the air, and he was elated. He had no idea where he was. He did not know that there was Chick-fil-A inside there that he could be having because the things of this world had grown strangely dim. He was fixated on this magnificence in the skies. And he wanted its attention. It's an airplane. How incredible, how magical, how wonderful. It's so close and it's so big. And when I watched it, I thought, there is a little boy having an appropriate response to something that is wonderful. That's what worship is. Worship is rightly appraising, rightly surmising the worth of the God who gave you breath and responding in an appropriate way. 
C.S. Lewis has said in one place or another that people used to think that objects, that things in the world warranted certain kinds of responses. And if you didn't have the right response, it was due to a defect in you. He said, for instance, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children. Which, thank you for talking that way, C.S. I do not enjoy the society of small children, he says, which I presume to be a defect in myself. He reckons the only appropriate response to small children is awe and wonder and love and affection and delight, and I don't like it, so something's wrong with me. And the Bible would say Christians are people who are learning to properly respond to God who's altogether lovely and altogether worthy. Who's the superlative of everything good that you think to call him. And he's the one who gives salvation. This is why D.A. Carson wrote that book that says worship is adoration and action. It recognizes that one of the primary features of being God's people is that we're in this different kind of world and we pause to waste our time here together paying attention to God who's more valuable and precious than anything else. And we're learning to respond rightly to that with wonder, with awe, with obedience, with service. And when we do that in the narrow context of worship, so worship is what we do when we come together. Then we can do it when we go out into the world. Do you notice when the worship service starts, we have a call to worship. It's our calling, and God himself is calling us to worship. And then when we get done at the end, we say, go in peace to love and to serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We could also say, go in peace to continue your worship this afternoon and tomorrow as scattered people out in the world. This is Paul saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're constantly trying to take in God's thoughts. We're constantly trying to imbibe God's desires so that we can worship him together and so that we can show his value out in the world as we serve him in all the things we do. Worship is our calling. And we're learning to respond rightly to something as wonderful as Christ himself, who's worthy of all the worship we can muster. But worship is not only our calling, but it is also our cures. You notice this, this assembly, this massive transcontinental assembly of multilingual people of all ethnicities and races all gathered together, all bowing the knee to one Lord. We're told, one of the elders asked me, they're in white robes, where did these come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them, 
And never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As these rescued people out of the many tribulations through which we must go to see the kingdom of God, these people are healed. There's a picture of this lamb, Jesus Christ, who's also a shepherd who is providing everything they've longed for. And as an aside, you should note, as you read Revelation, as you read much of the Bible, I heard somebody the other day saying, so-and-so, so-and-so said, you shouldn't read the Bible literally, you should read it literarily. And they were scoffing at this, like that was the dumbest thing anybody had ever said. And I thought, what do you mean? What's wrong with that? Of course you shouldn't read the Bible only literally and not literarily. You should read it literarily. You've got to figure out what's going on. Do you think when it says that they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that they like threw their robes in a washing machine and they had, instead of Clorox or Tide, they had blood and somehow they washed the blood in there and it made everything white? You think that's literal? Or that when he says they no longer will have any hunger... And they'll no longer have any thirst. That the primary concern is that people have to put water fountains in buildings. And no longer will you have to figure out how to spend $472 on a Yeti cooler so you can have cool drinks so you stay refreshed. You think that's the concern of this? It's figurative language. It's a metaphor. It's helping us understand something that we're really familiar with. Like being starving. Like Chris Farley, lay off me, I'm starving. You know what it's like to be really hungry, to really, really want something, to go a long time without eating, like two whole hours or something? You know what it's like to be really thirsty and you finally get to drink something and you just... And he's given us this picture that these praising people are praising the one who has actually met these deepest, driving, permeating desires of theirs. And they're satisfied. And they can't get over it. And he's even wiped away their tears. And one author said, to say that Christ will one day, that God himself will one day wipe away our tears, is exactly what's going to need to be done. Because we know there are lots of them. And so this cure comes. You find people who, first of all, are cured of their guilt. And we might not think that's a major problem. You've got bills to pay. What's what's your guilt? Your guilt's driving you all the time. It really is. You've heard me say before... Quoting, I think it's Carl Menninger, a famous psychiatrist, he said, I could release most of the people from mental hospitals today if I could only convince them of forgiveness. People walk around guilty and they don't know what to do about it. And so you know what they do? They virtue signal. Maybe that'll heal me. If I can just act outraged about political issues, about social issues, about the issues that the government tells me are important or about the universities tell me are important, if I can act outraged enough at that, Maybe that'll take care of my nagging guilt inside that I haven't done enough, that I'm not enough, that I'm not right, that I've failed some way. 
And these people are ecstatic because their stains have been Cloroxed out by Jesus himself, not by anything they've done. Their guilt is actually expunged. Their record has been thrown away. The slate has been shattered. And that's for happy making. That doesn't mean they haven't done anything to be guilty about. It just means that it doesn't matter. Because Christ has taken it all away. When you see lots of self-righteousness in the world, don't assume that means there's lots of righteousness. Assume that means there's lots of guilt that people don't know how to handle. The more severe someone is, the more finger wagon they are, the more you should suspect that there's some deep cleansing from Christ necessary in their lives, in our lives. They're also cured from this kind of shame. Do you notice they're in the presence of God and they don't avert their eyes? They don't have to cover themselves. They're standing, he's in the center of them and they're praising and they fall to their knees. But this is a wonderful thing. They're healed of their self-consciousness. Do you know this is one of the things that can happen to you even in this earth? Do you know you can walk around and not think about yourself all the time? It is possible. It has been tried and it happens to actual humans. I know some of them. I'm one of them. Some of the time. I am not aware of caring about what other people think of me some of the time. I'm up to like only one one thousandth of the time being free from that and the other times I'm not. But these folks have been cleansed. They've been honored by God who rejoices over them. He sings over them. He delights over them. He's glad they're there. And they're not worried about themselves anymore. They just praise him. This is what you get to practice doing on Sunday mornings when you come here. It's a great worship practice. When you pray, when you give, when you sing, when you sing, or like when you sing, When you sing, do you ever sing thinking about the person next to you or wanting to make sure the person behind you doesn't hear you? Well, if you don't sing well, you very much do, I bet. Congregational singing is a great opportunity to practice. It's a practice. Forgetting about yourself and just trying to sing to God. As terrible as that seems and sounds. Just do it. And you know what you find? Your calling is your cure. It turns out that when you turn away from watching yourself to the God who made you and you start praising Him and forgetting yourself, suddenly you're a free person. You're not ruled anymore. By the opinions and eyes of others, the world is not a mirror that you're walking around gazing at yourself through. Their shame is covered, their guilt is covered, and their aimlessness too. And that happens to us now. They serve the Lord day and night, we're told. Do not get the idea that life in the new earth is a perpetual, awful church service. Please, don't think that. It's not. If you hear a pastor say that, like, you don't like worshiping now, you're going to hate heaven because it's all we're going to do is sit around and worship services. Please, you think that's what it is? It's a picture, though. We're not just going to sit around singing all the time. We're told that they serve God day and night in the temple, but in another place we're told there is no temple. It's a picture. We're going to be 
people who have the right desires, who rightly appraise God's worth, who's, who want him, who want his ways, who value what he values. And so our worship's going to surely happen like it does now, congregationally and corporately, more magnificent than going to a Georgia football game, and because most of you feel more feels there than you would feel here, and, or a soccer game, whatever, and, I forgot what I was saying now, I shouldn't have said that about the Georgia game, I have no idea what I was saying. So should I start singing? <laughs> what day is it? Who knows? Worship is our calling, and it is our cure. And as we worship him, what's going to happen, I think, in the new earth is this idea that we're going to be so transfigured, our desires are going to be finally all right. We're going to respond appropriately to things, and we're going to care what God cares about. So we're going to worship him magnificently, corporately, as we do now. And then we're also going to do our things. We're going to be on an earth doing stuff, like playing soccer and going to work, and it's going to not stink. And you're going to do it as an act of worship, which is what Paul urges you to start doing now, tomorrow. See, we're the people who worship. We have a reason to do even menial tasks, even tasks where you don't get honored enough, where you don't make enough money, because we're doing them for the Lord Jesus Christ who has called us to worship him and who knows that as we worship him in our corporate narrow worship and in our more broadly out in the world, service to him worship, that we will be cured. Worship is a calling and a cure. And I should stop with this. There's a story Beautiful, touching story that David, I think his name is David Burns, Dr. Burns, he wrote a book called Feeling Good, which is not about marijuana. And it's about cognitive behavioral therapy. I have this book, and I watched a video of him, and he's talking about how as a psychiatrist, he stumbled upon this, what has now become the most popular kind of psychotherapy if you read about these kind of things. The whole idea that what happens to you is not nearly so important as what you tell yourself about what happens to you. That's why two people can react so very differently to the same circumstances, that you feel things based on what you tell yourself about the things that happen. He was talking about his, how he got into this and talking about how it addresses real anxiety and real despair. And he told this touching, terrible story really about his newborn son who was born they were so excited and the doctor said oh you've got a healthy little boy only he can't breathe this little boy was blue and his hands were blue and and he said we're gonna have to put him in the icu and so dr burns goes home that night and his baby's in the icu and he's so he's overwhelmed with grief and with the same kinds of fears and anxieties you would have and he says to himself well Okay, it's not the circumstances. It's what you tell yourself about the circumstances. And he's like, yeah, but this is a real thing. But he somehow gets himself to a point where he thinks, I'm going to go back. I, I can get in the ICU. I can be with my son. I don't need to sit here and think about my reaction to him. I need to go serve him. Be with him. I'm, I'm on the medical staff at Stanford. They'll let me into the ER. I mean, it's the ICU. And so he says, I go in there. And I ask, can I touch him? And she says, yes, you just have to wear this glove. So he gets a glove on and he puts his hand on his little baby's forehead. This baby who's just shuddering, troubling over 
getting one breath, just laboring to get it. And it's so heart-wrenching for him. And he puts his hand on his head. And the most touching story to imagine. He says, David, your mommy and I, we love you. And we're with you. And we're going to be with you. And afterwards, he leaves the hospital. He said, I was feeling some amount of relief. And the nurse called. She said, Dr. Burns, Dr. Burns, you're not going to believe it. It's so amazing. Right after you left, David started breathing on his own. He calmed down entirely and he started breathing on his own and he's been released from the ICU and he's now with his mother in the room and they're cuddling, cuddling with his mommy. And he was so excited and he said, in this touching story, and I'd like to introduce to you David, my son, who's now 25 years old or whatever he was. I've never told this story publicly before, but I asked him if I could tell it, I would love to be able to introduce him. And so he introduces his son. His son walks up on the stage and says, Touching moment. What in a story. And his son takes the mic and he says, Dad, I'm so proud of you. And he's filled with tears himself. And he says, I just want to thank you, Dad. I just want to thank you for, for having enough faith in yourself. To have faith in me. To give me life. And they threw their arms around each other and the crowd erupted in Claps and applauds, and they were crying, and it was a very touching thing. Except when he said that, I did this inside. What? Are you kidding me? That's your conclusion? I went to a movie one time, and it ended, and at the end, one dude said, rightly, for all the people there, he spoke for us. He said, You've got to be kidding me! He just screamed it out in the theater. No country for old men. That's the end of that. You can. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. That's how it ended. And when this touching story ended with a son saying, thank you for your faith in yourself, for putting your faith in me to give me life. I thought, that's how the story ends? Oh, that's so tragic. It's so flimsy. You told the story wrong. You had this amazing story. Touching. Transformative. Moving. And then you misattributed it and you made it dinky. Why would you do that? That's copyright infringement. You took the property of God and you misassigned it to your father and to yourself. Fathers, do you think you have the power to give life to your children? If you do, you better get busy. You better feel afraid. you got some heavy weight on your shoulders. Moms, do you really think you give life to your children? He screwed up the story because he misattributed. He saw the same thing you or I might have seen. And it was rightly wonderful. And all he could think to do was praise himself and his dad. Now, I'm not opposed to thanking the people. Thank God's agents, of course. But what God's people have a calling to do is to look at all the magnificent things and not to misattribute them. To say, wait a second. We say salvation belongs to the Lord. We say he's the one who gave us life. 
We say he's the one who's going to see us through death. We say he's the one who accepts us and cleanses us. We say he's the one who gives us purpose. We say he's the one who welcomes us in and heals us. We say he's the one who covers our shame. We say he is our calling and he is our cure. I'd say we'll be a good church if we give ourselves to worship here together and out in the world and we don't misattribute God's salvific works, his honoring, his repairing, his renewing, his sustaining by giving credit to dinky little people. We worship the lamb on the throne and salvation belongs to him and wisdom and power and honor and strength and every superlative you can think to add to that. So let's do that even as we leave today. Amen.